0: Hello and welcome to Scintillating Stories. In this show, we read short stories by a variety of authors. Today, we're reading some pieces by Alice Dunbar Nelson. Alice was a key figure in the Harlem Renaissance, writing prose, poetry and journalistic pieces. She was also an activist for the rights of women and African-Americans. Violets and Other Tales by Alice Ruth Moore Violets, one, and she tied a bunch of violets with a tress of her pretty brown hair. She sat in the yellow glow of the lamplight, softly humming these words. It was Easter evening, and the newly risen spring world was slowly sinking to a gentle, rosy, opalescent slumber, sweetly tired of the joy which had pervaded it all day for in the dawn of the perfect morn it had arisen, stretched out its arms in glorious happiness to greet the Saviour, and said its hallelujahs, merrily trilling out carols of bird and organ and flower song. But the evening had come, and rest. There was a letter lying on the table. It read, I send you this little bunch of flowers as my Easter token. Perhaps you may not be able to read their meaning, so I'll tell you. Violets, you know, are my favourite flowers, dear little human-faced things. They seem always as if about to whisper a love word, and then they signify that thought which passes always between you and me. The orange blossoms, you know their meaning, the little pinks are the flowers you love, the evergreen leaf is the symbol of the endurance of our affection— "'The tube-roses I put in, "'because once when you kissed "'and pressed me close in your arms, "'I had a bunch of tube-roses on my bosom. "'And the heavy fragrance of their cushioned loveliness "'has always lived in my memory. "'The violets and pinks from a bunch I wore today, "'and when kneeling at the altar during communion, "'did I sin, dear, when I thought of you? "'The tube-roses and orange blossoms I wore Friday night. "'You always wished for a lock of my hair.' so I'll tie these flowers with them. But there, it is not stable enough. Let me wrap them with a bit of ribbon, pale blue from the little dress I wore last winter to the dance, when we had such a long, sweet talk in that forgotten nook. You always loved that dress. It fell in such soft rustles away from the throat and bosom. You called me your little forget-me-not that night. I laid the flowers away for a while in our favourite book. Byron. Just at the poem we loved best, and now I send them to you. Keep them always in remembrance of me. And if aught should occur to separate us, press these flowers to your lips, and I will be with you in spirit, permeating your heart with unutterable love and happiness. Two. It is Easter again. As of old, the joyous bells clang out the glad news of the resurrection. The giddy-dancing sunbeams laugh riotously in the field and street. Birds carol their sweet twitterings everywhere, and the heavy perfume of flowers scents the golden atmosphere with inspiring fragrance. One long golden sunbeam steals silently into the white-curtained window of a quiet room, and lay athwart a sleeping face, cold, pale, still its fair young face pressed against the satin-lined casket, slender white fingers idle now, they that have never known rest, locked softly over a bunch of violets, violets and tube-roses in her soft brown hair, violets in the bosom of her long white gown, Violets and tube roses and orange blossoms banked everywhere until the air was filled with the ascending souls of the human flowers. Some whisper that a broken heart had ceased to flutter in that still, young form, and that it was a mercy for the soul to ascend on the slender sunbeam. Today she kneels at the throne of heaven, where one year ago she had communed at that earthly altar. 3. Far away, in a distant city, a man carelessly looking among some papers turned over a faded bunch of flowers tied with a blue ribbon and a lock of hair. He paused meditatively a while, then turned to the regal-looking woman lounging before the fire. He asked, "'Wife, did you ever send me these?' She raised her great black eyes to his with a gesture of ineffable disdain and replied languidly, You know very well I can't bear flowers. How could I ever send such sentimental trash to anyone? Throw them into the fire! And the Easter bells chimed a solemn requiem as the flames slowly licked up the faded violets. Was it merely fancy on the wife's part or... Did the husband really sigh? A long, quivering breath of remembrance. The woman. The literary manager of the club arose, cleared his throat, adjusted his cravat, fixed his eyes sternly upon the young man, and in a sonorous voice, a little marred by his habitual lisp, asked, "'Mister, will you please tell us your opinion upon the question "'whether woman's chances of matrimony are increased or decreased "'when she becomes man's equal as a wage earner?' The secretary adjusted her eyeglasses and held her pencil alertly, poised above her book, ready to note which side Mr. took. Mr. fidgeted, pulled himself together with a violent jerk, and finally spoke his mind. Someone else did likewise, also someone else. Then the woman interposed and jumped on the men. The men retaliated. A wordy war ensued, and the whole matter ended by nothing being decided, pro or con— "'Generally, the case in wordy discussions. "'Moi?' "'Well, I sawed wood and said nothing. "'But all the while there was forming in my mind— "'No, I won't say forming. "'It was there already. "'It was this. "'Why should well-salaried women marry? "'Take the average working woman of today. "'She works from five to ten hours a day, "'doing extra night work sometimes, of course— her work over she goes home or to her boarding house, as the case may be. Her meals are prepared for her, she has no household cares upon her shoulders, no troublesome dinners to prepare, or a fault-finding husband, no fretful children to try her patience, no petty bread and meat economies to adjust. She has her cares, her money troubles, her debts and her scrimpings, it is true, but they only make her independent instead of reducing her to a dead level of despair. Her day's work ends at the office, school, factory, or store. The rest of the time is hers, undisturbed by the restless going to and fro of housewifely cares, and she can employ it in mental or social diversions. She does not incessantly rely upon the whims of a cross man to take her to such amusements as she desires. In this nineteenth century she is free to go where she pleases, provided it be in a moral atmosphere without comment. Theatres, concerts, lectures, and the lighter amusements of social affairs among her associates are open to her, and there she can go, see and be seen, admire and be admired, enjoy and be enjoyed, without a single harrowing thought of the baby's milk or the husband's coffee. Her earnings are her own, indisputably, unreservedly, undividedly. She knows to a certainty just how much she can spend, how well she can dress, how far her earnings will go. If there is a dress, a book, a bit of music, a bunch of flowers or a bit of furniture that she wants, she can get it. And there is no need of asking anyone's advice or gently hinting to John that Mrs. So-and-so has a lovely new hat and there is one ever so much prettier and cheaper down at Thus and Co.'s. To an independent spirit there is a certain sense of humiliation and wounded pride in asking for money. Be it five cents or five hundred dollars, the working woman knows no such pang. She has but to question her account and all is over. In the summer she takes her savings of the winter, packs her trunk, and takes a trip more or less extensive, and there is none to say her nay. Nothing to bother her save the accumulation of her own baggage.' There is an independent, happy, free and easy swing about the motion of her life. Her mind is constantly being broadened by contact with the world in its working clothes, in her leisure moments, by the better thoughts of dead and living men which she meets in her applications to books and periodicals, in her vacations, by her studies of nature, or it may be other communities than her own. The freedom which she enjoys does not trespass upon, for, if she did not learn at school, she has acquainted herself habits of strong self-reliance, self-support, earnest thinking, deep discriminations, and firmly believes that the most perfect liberty is that state in which humanity conforms itself to, and obeys strictly, without deviation, those laws which are best fitted for their mutual self-advancement." and so your independent working woman of to-day comes as near being ideal in her equable self-poise as can be imagined. So why should she hasten to give this liberty up in exchange for a serfdom, sweet sometimes it is true, but which too often becomes galling and unendurable? It is not marriage that I decry, for I don't think any really sane person would do this— but it is this wholesale marrying of girls in their teens, this rushing into an unknown plane of life to avoid work, avoid work! What housewife dares call a moment her own? Marriages might be made in heaven, but too often they are consummated right here on earth, based on a desire to possess the physical attractions of the woman by the man, pretty much as a child desires a toy— and an innate love of man, a wild desire not to be ridiculed by the foolish as an old maid, and a certain delicate shrinking from the world of work. Laziness is a good name for it. The attraction of mind to mind, the ability of one to complement the lights and shadow in the other, the capacity of either to fulfil the duties of wife or husband, these do not enter into the contract. That is why we have divorce courts. And so our independent woman, in every year of her full, rich, well-rounded life, gaining fresh knowledge and experience, learning humanity, and particularly that portion of it which is the other gender, so well as to avoid clay-footed idols, and finally, when she does consent to bear the yoke upon her shoulders, does so with perhaps less romance and glamour than her younger, scoffing sisters— "'but with an assurance of solid and more lasting happiness. "'Why should she have hastened this? "'Was aught lost by the delay? "'They say that men don't admire this type of woman.' That they prefer the soft, dainty, winning, mindless creature who cuddles into men's arms, agrees to everything they say, and looks upon them as a race of gods turned loose upon this earth for the edification of womankind. Well, maybe so, but there is one thing positive. They certainly respect the independent one, and admire her too, even if it is at a distance, and that in itself is something. As to the other part, no matter how sensible a woman is on other questions, when she falls in love, she is fool enough to believe her adored one a veritable Solomon. Cuddling! Well, she may preside over conventions, brandish her umbrella at board meetings, tramp the streets soliciting subscriptions, wield the blue pencil in the editorial sanctum, hammer a typewriter, smear her nose with ink from a gallery full of pied type, lead infant ideas through the tortuous mazes of C.A.T. and R.A.T., plead at the bar or wield the scalpel in a dissecting room. Yet... When the right moment comes, she will sink as gracefully into the manly embrace, throw her arms as lovingly around his neck and cuddle as warmly and sweetly to his bosom as her little sister who has done nothing else but think, dream and practice for that hour. It comes natural, you see. In unconsciousness. There was a big booming in my ears. Great heavy iron bells that swung to and fro on either side, and sent out deafening reverberations that steeped the senses in a musical melody of sonorous sound, to and fro, backwards and forwards, yet ever receding in a gradually widening circle, monotonous "'mournful, weird, suffusing the soul with an unutterable sadness "'as images of wailing processions of weeping, empty-armed women "'and widowed maidens flash through the mind "'and settle on the soul with a crushing, o'er-pressing weight of sorrow. "'Now I lay floating, arms outstretched "'on an illimitable waste of calm, tranquil waters.' Far away, as I could reach, there was naught but the pale, white-flecked green waters of this ocean of eternity, and above the tender blue sky arched down in perfect love of its mistress, the ocean. Sky and sea, sea and sky, blue, calm, infinite, perfect sea, heaving its womanly bosom to the passionate kisses of its ardent sun-lover. Away into infinity stretched its perfectibility of love, into eternity I was drifting, alone, silent, yet burdened still with the remembrance of the sadness of the bells. Far away they tolled out their incessant dirge, grown resignedly sweet now so intense in its infinite peace that a calm of love beyond all human understanding and above all earthly passions sank deep into my soul and so permeated my whole being with rest and peace that my lips smiled and my eyes drooped in access of fulsome joy into the illimitable space of infinity we drifted, my soul and I, borne along only by the network of auburn hair that floated about me in green waters. But now a rude gasp from somewhere is laid upon me, pressed upon my face. Instantly the air grows gloomy, grey, and the ocean rocks menacingly. While the great bells grow harsh and strident, as they hint of a dark fate, I clasp my hands appealingly to the heavens. I moan and struggle with the unknown grasp. Then... There is peace and the sweet content of the infinite nirvana. Then, slowly, softly, the net of auburn hair begins to drag me down below the surface of the sea. Oh, the skies are so sweet, and now the tender stars are looking upon us. How fair to stay and sway upon the breast of eternity. But the net is inexorable and gently, slowly pulls me down. Now we sink straight down, we whirl in slow, eddying circles, spiral-like, while at each turn those bells ring out, clanging now in wild crescendo, then whispering dread secrets of the ocean's depths. O ye mighty bells, tell me from your learned lore of the hopes of mankind, tell me what fruit he beareth from his strivings and yearnings, "'Know not ye? "'Why ring ye now so joyful, so hopeful, "'then toll your dismal prophecies of o'ercast skies? "'Years have passed, and now centuries too "'are swallowed in the gulf of eternity. "'Yet the auburn net still whirls me in eddying circles, "'down, down to the very womb of time, "'to the innermost recesses of the mighty ocean.' And now, peace, perfect, unconditioned, sublime peace, and rest and silence. For to the great depths of the mighty ocean, the solemn bells cannot penetrate, and no sound, not even the beatings of one's own heart, is heard. In the heart of eternity there can be nothing to break the calm of frozen eons, In the great white hall I lay, silent, unexpectant, calm, and smiled in perfect content at the web of auburn hair which trailed across my couch. No passionate longing for life or love, no doubting question of heaven or hell, no strife for carnal needs, only rest, content, peace, happiness perfect, whole, complete, sublime. And thus, past ages and ages, eons and eons, the great earth there in the dim distance above the ocean has toiled wearily about the sun, until its mechanism was failing, and the warm ardour of the lover's eyes was becoming pale and cold from age, While the air all about the fast-dwindling spheres was heavy and thick with the sorrows and heartaches and woes of the humans upon its face, heavy with the screams and roar of war, with the curses of the deceived of traitors, with the passionate sighs of unlawful love, with the crushing unrest of blighted hopes, knowledge and contempt of all these things permeated even to the innermost depths of time— as I lay in the halls of rest and smiled at the web floating through my white fingers. But hark, discord begins. There is a vague fear which springs from an unknown source and drifts into the depths of rest. Fear, indefinable, unaccountable, unknowable, shuddering. Pain begins, for the heart springs into life and fills the silence with the terror of its beatings, thick, knifing, frightful in its intense longing. Power of mind over soul, power of calm over fear, avail nothing, suspense and misery, locked arm in arm, pervade aeonic stillness, till all things else become subordinate, unnoticed. Centuries drift away, and the giddy old reprobate, earth dying a hideous, ghastly death— "'with but one solitary human to shudder in unison with its last throes, "'to bask in the last pale rays of a cold sun, "'to inhale the last breath of a metallic atmosphere, "'totters, reels, falls into space and is no more. "'Peel out, ye brazen bells, peel out the requiem of the sinner, "'roll your mournful tones into the ears of the saddened angels "'weeping with wing-covered eyes.' "'told the requiem of the sinner, "'sinking swiftly, soberingly into the depths of time's ocean. "'Down, down, until the great groans "'which arose from the domes and ionic roofs about me "'told that the sad old earth sought rest in eternity, "'while the universe shrugged its shoulders "'over the loss of another star.'" And now the great invisible fear became apparent, tangible for all the sins, the woes, the miseries, the dreadfuls, the dismal achings, the throbbings, the dreariness, the gloom and the lost star came together and like a huge genie took form and hideous shape. Octopus-like, which slowly approached me, erstwhile happy and hovered about my couch in fearful menace. O shining web of hair, burst loose your bonds and bid me move. O time, cease not your calculations, but speed me on to deliverance. O silence vast, immense, infuse into your soul some sound other than the heavy throbbing of this fast disintegrating heart. O pitiless stone arches, let fall your crushing weight upon this Stygian monster.' I pray to time, to eternity, to the frozen eons of the past. Useless. I am seized, forced to open my cold lips. There is agony supreme, mortal agony of nerve tension and wrenching of vitality. I struggle, scream and clutch the monster with superhuman strength, fling him aside and rise, bleeding, screaming, but triumphant and keenly, mortal in every vein, alive and throbbing with consciousness and pain. No, it is not opium, nor nightmare, but chloroform, a dentist, three obstinate molars, a pair of forceps, and a lively set of nerves. Thank you so much for listening. These stories can be read online. I'll leave a link in the description. If you want to suggest or submit a short story or a subject you'd like us to cover, then contact us through our Facebook page or Twitter and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.